At certain times in our lives, we find ourselves at an intersection. And in these defining moments, we have to decide which path we're going to take. The path God has laid out before us or some other way. In 2020, when the world hit pause, First Church chose to hit play. We believe this is our moment, not to just go along with the flow, but to navigate people down the path God wants them to take. During our 115 year journey as a church, we faced a lot of intersections. And we're here today because those who came before us did not choose the easy path or the path of least resistance. For over a century, First Church has impacted the 918 and beyond because we've let God lead us down the path of faith. Today, we find ourselves at another intersection, a pivotal moment in our history. Now isn't the time for us to turn around. Now isn't the time for us to wander aimlessly. Now is the time for us to courageously take the path God has placed before us. The path Jesus wants us to take may not always be easy, but with Him as our guide, we are unstoppable. Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you are joining us today for worship. It looks like we have a great crowd here in person, but I know we also have hundreds of people worshiping with us online as well. So if you are here in person, would you get loud and welcome in our online family here today? We're going to let them know how happy we are that they're joining us as well. And you're here for week three of our Unstoppable series. And if you've been here, you know that this is more than just a series. Unstoppable is a vision. It's a movement that we believe God wants us to be a part of. And this is something that's going to shape our church, not just over this six-week period or even for the next two years, but for generations to come. And so if this is your first Sunday with us and you're like, what's going on? We have a new Unstoppable website. It's firstchurchok.com forward slash unstoppable. You can go there, watch our 10 minute vision video, as well as read other information and see the plans that we believe that God has in store for us. But also, we prepared a vision booklet, a guidebook for everybody, and so we've asked you if you're here in person to keep bringing this book back, because there's a place for sermon notes and small group studies, as well as all the details about our vision as a church, and if you need one today, we have volunteers in the back, once again, ready to pass them out. So all you have to do is put your hand up in the air, they'll come down the aisle, and they'll give you one. If you uh, need one, or maybe if you left one at home, because you forgot yours today, or whatever, uh, just go ahead and put your hand up, and our volunteers will give you one right now. And if you are watching at home right now, if you're online, we don't want to leave you out. You can go back to that website, firstchurchok.com forward slash unstoppable, and you can download a digital copy of this guidebook as well. And one other thing that I want to mention as they are passing out those guidebooks, I want to invite you guys once again to be part of our Advanced Commitment Night. That's going to take place November the 5th. It's a Friday evening. There's not a home Owasso football game, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, but this is going to be an incredible night. And I know some people are asking, well, what's the difference between Advanced Commitment Night and Commitment Sunday? Commitment Sunday is, of course, as a Sunday morning, everybody who's here will be a part of that. It'll be exciting, fun-filled day. But Advanced Commitment Night is also open to anyone who wants to lead in advance when it comes to their commitment towards this unstoppable initiative. And I'm just going to let you know, this is going to be a memorable night. This is going to be a night that you are not going to forget. So we want to invite you to come out. 
child care is provided. We're also going to have special activities after the service for families and kids. We're going to have desserts and all sorts of stuff. It's going to be an incredible night. You're not going to want to miss it. So go ahead and mark it on your calendars, November the 5th, our Advanced Commitment Night. This is a chance for those of you who want to lead during this initiative to come and be a part of that. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited about all the enthusiasm our church has right now. I mean, it is fun talking to you guys and hearing stories how God is moving in your life right now. People message me all the time and just to walk around town and see unstoppable t-shirts, you know, it's just, it's great because I'm seeing them everywhere and that's really cool as well. One of our church family members sent me this picture of her granddaughters who are all wearing their unstoppable shirts, their unstoppable onesies. Yes, we do have onesies for even the littlest ones in our church and that's just so exciting. And by the way, if you still haven't got an unstoppable shirt, we have some out at our unstoppable zone in our foyer. You can stop by today. And I know we're still out of some sizes. There's this supply issue right now in our country. And so they have been ordered and we're just waiting on them to come in. So keep checking back each week. If you don't have, if we don't have your size, we will get it. We want you to have one as well. But I love the excitement that we see in our church right now. Our church is 115 years old next year, 115 years. Old. And yet, we are as hungry and humble as ever to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is exciting to me. And the reason why I think our church is in this spot right now is because we really do believe the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, for us, these aren't just words. This is a promise that we are, we are betting our lives on. That as long as Jesus is at the head of his church, as long as Jesus is building up his church, all the powers of hell will not be able to stand against the work that we're doing for him. We believe that. And I hope you believe it as well. Because if we don't believe it, then it's not going to happen. I've had a pretty busy season here recently, one, because of everything going on here at church. I mean, we're doing a whole lot right now, if you can't tell, so things are kind of busy right now with everything going on at church. It's all good, and it's exciting, but it's busy, and I've also been busy, and I've mentioned this before, because uh, it's taking up a large chunk of my week every week, but it's still uh, rewarding. I'm coaching two soccer teams right now. I'm coaching my son's eight- and nine-year-old soccer team, and I'm coaching my daughter's four-year-old soccer team, and like I said, it's fun. I love, love spending time with my kids, but it's a whole lot of time. And Alex, he moved up to a new level of soccer, you might say, a new league where uh, they play on a bigger field and they've got bigger goals and they actually have goalies this time around because before they never had official goalies, you know, and there's more players on the field and they've got different rules and like they actually take penalty kicks and they have offsides and they can get cards if you get a foul or whatever. There's just a lot of new stuff that is part of this new level of soccer that he's now playing. At. And so it's taken some time for us to adjust, but we're still undefeated and we're having a fun time. But if you've ever watched soccer before, you know that one thing I just mentioned, a penalty kick, that's just part of the game. And it's something that you have to get used to, and it's, uh, they can be pretty hard to defend. In fact, in professional soccer, those professional players will kick a penalty kick 60 to 80 miles per hour. And if you've ever seen a penalty kick, you know how it's set up. The ball is played inside
side of the box, 12 yards away from the goal, and you get a free kick, basically, because there was a foul or there was an offense committed inside the box. And so the ball is set up, and the only person who is allowed to, to defend the goal is the goalie himself, no other defenders. So basically, if you're shooting the ball, you're shooting just on the, on the goalie, and your job is to do a powerful kick and put it in there. You can tell I play soccer, right? No, I'm kidding. That wasn't great. But still, that's the point. Now, a goal in real soccer is a lot bigger than this one. It's like, you know, 24 feet long and 8 feet high. I mean, it's big. It's huge. And according to sports science, professional athletes will hit a penalty kick 85% of the time because it's just hard to defend. Now, those are professional athletes. The boys on my son's soccer team, they don't do that, okay? Because they have never done penalty kicks before, and they get really, really nervous when they get up there. And what happens a lot is they will kick the ball over the goal or beside the goal. They'll kick it right to the goalie, or maybe they'll kick it too soft because they just get nervous in that moment, and they freeze up, and they, and they panic. But the first time that our team had a chance to kick a penalty kick was our second game of the season, and I asked my son, Alex, to do it. And the reason why I asked him to do it was not because he's just my son, but I asked him to do it because I, I know him. And I knew that he believed he could do it. The other players on the team, I wasn't sure yet. And so I've given other players a chance since then, but I knew this was our first ever, our first ever penalty kick, and I knew Alex believed he could make the shot. And sure enough, he did. One of our parents caught it on video. Here he goes, taking the shot, and there he nailed it. He put it right in, and everybody was excited, and they applauded, and it was great. And now, other players will start to say, hey, if Alex can do it, you know, I can do it as well. But it was funny, right after Alex hit that shot, one of the... One of my other players that was on the sideline, he came up to me, and he was all excited. He goes, hey, coach, Alex made the PK. And I was just like, yeah, he did. And then this player said, by the way, if we have a penalty kick next game and you ask me to take it, don't, because I'm going to mess it up. And I was just like, okay, I won't. Uh, I will make a middle note right there. At least he's honest, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to believe that you can do it. And that's the reason why I asked Alex because I knew, even though he might be nervous, he believed that he could do what he's being asked to do. It's interesting to me that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus makes this statement. And we're studying the book of Acts right now, which is the history of the early church. And at the very beginning of Acts, when, I, when Jesus is speaking to his first followers, he says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus says, you are going to change the world. You, my followers, are going to take my mission, my message to the ends of the earth. And all people everywhere will have a chance to come and have a relationship with me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of those first disciples, I would have thought, you know, that sounds like a pretty impossible task. I mean, there were only the 12 apostles as well as a few extras that were hanging out with them. And Jesus says, you guys are going to go out and change the world. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't leave any doubt. When you read his words, he doesn't say, you might go to the ends of the earth. Or it's a possibility that you guys can accomplish this. Or you got a good shot at it, boys. You know, he didn't say that. He said, you 
will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He says it matter of fact. Jesus believes we can do it. He knows we can do it. And here's the thing. He knows we can do it because we're not going to be doing it with our own abilities and gifts and talents and resources. If it was left up to us just to figure out how to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, yeah, it would be an impossible task. But the reason why it's not impossible, the reason why Jesus is so confident about this is because he says, my spirit will empower you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I will be living within you, and I will empower you to do what I am commissioning you to do. And my question is, do we really believe we can do what Jesus says he'll empower us to do? Well, it all depends on who we're putting our faith and trust in. If we're trusting in ourselves and we're trying to figure this out on our own and we're trying to just rely on our own strengths and abilities and resources, yeah, we're not going to be able to do it. But when we trust God, when we trust God, mission impossible becomes mission unstoppable because he is working in and through us. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And even now, as we're in the midst of this unstoppable initiative, when I talk to people outside of our church, I'm not talking about our church family, but when I talk to people outside of our church family about what we believe God wants us to do, and I talk about our primary goal and then our secondary goals and our mission advancement, and I talk about everything that we believe God wants us to do over the next two years, I will have people look at me and say, well, those are some good goals, but they kind of say it with the tone of, that sounds like an impossible thing. And you know what? We as leaders, we've been praying about this for over a year and planning and doing our due diligence and all that. But as we have worked through everything, the one thing that we kept saying was, we don't want to make plans that are so small that we can do it on our own. We want to do things that only God can get credit for. And here's the thing. When it comes to this unstoppable initiative, if this is going to happen... It's going to happen because God is in it and because we are allowing God to work in our lives. One more tidbit about penalty kicks. They don't just happen during a game. They also happen at the end of a game if the score is tied. Each team gets five players who get to take five penalty kicks, and the team that has the most at the end wins the game. If it's still tied, you go into another round of penalty kicks. And what's interesting is, according to sports science, that if you are the fifth and final player to come up and take a penalty kick and to score, uh, with the score, your team is down by one goal. In other words, you have to hit the shot in order for your team not to lose. The percentage of those guys who make that shot drops to 62%. Now, normally, in a normal situation, it's 85%. It drops to 62%. But... If you're the fifth and last guy to go and to score, it's tied, meaning you make it, you win, but if you miss it, then you don't lose. The percentage goes up to 92%. goes up that high. So 62%, you're playing not to lose. 92%, you're playing to win. And here's what I have discovered. Unstoppable churches, they play to win. They don't play not to lose. And I know if you're an English teacher, that's a double negative, that's a sports term, okay? So hang with me. Unstoppable churches, they play to win. They don't play not to lose. In other words, they don't play it safe. 
They don't play in such a way where they're led by fear. They don't play in such a way where they're not sure if they can do it. Unstoppable churches. They play to win. You know why? Because they believe this. They believe the promise of Scripture when it says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the promise we have to live by. And I believe the reason why the church in the book of Acts, the early church, had such success at taking the gospel to the entire Roman Empire in just a few decades is because they believed that promise. And so what we see in the book of Acts is the church continues to grow. The church continues to grow, but it's located just in Jerusalem. It's kind of a local movement just within the walls of Jerusalem. And so there it is just within the boundaries of Jerusalem. And even though the church is experiencing persecution and hardship, it's still growing. Their numbers are still increasing the first part of the book of Acts. But we're now seven chapters into Acts, and the church is still a local movement. And if you remember Jesus' words early on in the book of Acts, he didn't want the church to be a local movement. In fact, he says in Acts chapter 1, remember, you you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus had bigger plans for his church than just to be this local movement in one city. And yet, we're seven chapters in, and the church has remained local. And so, Jesus is going to do something about that, or at least allow for something to happen that would shake his church up. Now, here's the thing. The first church, they knew that they weren't supposed to just be a local movement. The very first sermon that was ever preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, the day that the church began, Peter says this. Peter says, we move on to the next slide. Peter says, the promise is for you. This promise of salvation is for you and your children and for all who are afar off. Those people who are far off, that was a reference to Gentiles, those who weren't Jews. In other words, this message of salvation, this promise of salvation is for everyone, everywhere. They knew that, and yet, seven chapters in, those who are far off are still left out. So we get to chapter 8, and this is a defining moment for the church. Because a great persecution breaks out within Jerusalem, a persecution like they had never seen before. Christians are being arrested all the time. One of the church leaders named Stephen is martyred. He's killed for his faith. And this is how Acts 8 starts. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now I want you to catch this. Jesus said... Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria. The church has stayed put in Jerusalem. And now, because of persecution, the church is now scattered, forced to move into Judea and Samaria. And they have a choice to make in this moment. They've been uprooted from their homes. They've had to leave their jobs behind. They've had to leave family members and friends behind, and now they're living in a new place where they've possibly never been before, doing jobs they haven't done before, living in homes they didn't live in before. They're starting over a brand new life in these new areas, and they have a choice to make. Are they just going to lay low? Are they just going to go with the flow? Are they going to hide their faith or maybe even abandon their faith because of all this persecution that's taking place? Or are they going to embrace God's bigger vision for them? And Acts tells us what they decide to do. Verse 4 says, But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. In other words, even though they've lost their homes, even though they've been uprooted, even though persecution is going on, they continued to live out the mission that Jesus had given them. 
You know why they continue to do this? Because they believe that God's eternal promises are more valuable than our temporary possessions. It was okay. It wasn't great. They didn't prefer it, but it was okay if they lost their homes because they had a home in heaven. It was okay if everything in this world was taken away from them because they knew one day all that was going to be taken away from them anyway. You can't take it with you. What mattered was the eternal purpose of God. And so they were willing to give up everything in order to live out His eternal purpose for their lives. And I think most of us would probably agree with that statement who are here this morning. But do we practically always live like that? Let me illustrate it like this. Allison's grandpa, my wife's grandfather, years ago, he was told by his doctor he needed to lose some weight. And so he decided to start a Slim Fast plan. This was big in that time. It was a huge fad. I think Slim Fast is still around. It doesn't come in cans like this anymore. I think it's in like bottles now or something. But this was huge when he decided he wanted to lose weight. And so he decided to start a Slim Fast diet. And after about a month or so of this, he wasn't losing any weight. He was actually gaining weight. And so he talked to some of his family members like, I don't get it. I'm taking these shakes, you know, for breakfast and lunch every single day. And I'm not losing any weight. But what they found out is he was still eating his normal food. He was eating his normal meals and taking the shakes with them. And I guess he thought that the shakes were going to magically make all the, you know, unhealthy stuff disappear. I guess. I mean, I don't know. And so he didn't understand why he was not losing weight because what he missed was this was a meal supplement. You know, this is something you were, or a meal replacement. You were, it wasn't a supplement, it was a replacement. You're supposed to take this instead of your meal. And so he was gaining weight. And so one of his family members said, Papa, no, that's not how it works. You can't eat your normal meal. You eat the Slim Fast Shake instead. He said, oh, well, I don't want to do that. And they said, well, then you're not going to lose weight. And he said, ah, at my age, it's not worth it anyway. And so he just gave up, and he kept living as he was living. Now, here's the thing. I wonder if sometimes as followers of Jesus, we don't do the same thing. We're like, okay, okay, Jesus, I'm ready. You want me to live on mission? You want me to serve? You want me to get going? Okay, here I am. Let's go. And Jesus says, okay, this is what I want you to do. And we're like, I don't know if that's worth it. Like, I'm fine serving over here. This is fine. I've got a little comfort zone right here. And as long as I stay right here, I'm good. And Jesus says, no, no, I want you to come all the way over here and serve me outside of that comfort zone. And we're like, no, no, I'm okay, Jesus. I didn't know that much was going to be required of me. And so what we end up doing is we end up offering token gifts to Jesus rather than giving him our full heart. And where did we ever get the idea that God's only worth token gifts? Where did we ever get the idea that it's okay just to give God whatever we can? Whatever we can when it comes to our time, whatever we can when it comes to our resources, whatever we can when it comes to our money. Where did we get this idea that God's okay with just whatever? Because he's not. And he deserves a lot more than that. He doesn't deserve our leftovers or what we think is appropriate. He deserves our all. Because he is our God, our Father, who loves us and created us and has given us everything we have. And here's the thing. A gospel that costs you nothing will never reach its unstoppable potential in your life. If the gospel never costs you anything, then you will continue to limit what God wants to accomplish in your life. When we cling to our comforts, we limit the vision that God has for us. And interestingly, that could happen to the best of us. It's happened to me before, different seasons in my life. It happened to a guy named Peter in the book of Acts. You've probably heard his name before. He was one of the most influential leaders in the book of Acts. 
close friend of Jesus, and yet Peter, at one point in his life, was limiting what God wanted to do in his life because he was clinging to his comforts. See, Peter knew that the gospel was supposed to be for all people, meaning Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles alike. But for the first part of him being part of the church, he only went out to Jewish people because that's who he was comfortable being around. Now, he knew better than that. In fact, he was the one who actually said on the day of Pentecost, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And when God said all people, he meant all people, not just Jews like you, Peter, everybody everywhere. Peter said those words, and yet he still hasn't done it. He's the one who also said, and we looked at this verse a second ago, the promise of salvation is for you and your children and for all, all who are afar off. All those people who live in foreign countries and people who are worshiping false gods right now, it's for them too. You've got to go introduce them to Jesus as well. And Peter heard Jesus before he ascended into heaven say these words, go and make disciples of all nations, not just your own people group. But all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Peter heard Jesus say those words, and yet, Peter's not practically living it out. And we can jump on Peter if we want to, but haven't we all been guilty before of believing better than we actually live? You know what I'm saying? We believe the right stuff, but we don't actually live it out. You know, I believe in the power of prayer, but yeah, I don't pray as much as I need to. I know that. I believe in the church. Church is important, yeah, definitely. But you skip every time you get the chance. Yeah, I believe the Bible says I need to be generous, and I believe that the Bible commands me to tithe. But, you know, I just don't want to give up certain things. Sometimes we're, we're a lot better at believing certain truths than we are actually living those truths out. And I think that's where Peter is right now. So Peter, he's staying in the city of Joppa. And he's staying in the city of Joppa, and he's staying at a friend's house, this guy named Simon. And the Bible says this, the Bible says that he was staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. And that's a good idea. I mean, it makes sense if Simon is a, tam a tanner, that his house would be by the sea. You know, that makes perfect sense. No, that's not tanning it like that. It's actually making leather. But anyway, he's staying. It's a bad joke. I know. I tried. I really did. I tried. You guys are not with me. Okay, I'm sorry. Move on. Maybe I'll scratch that by the next service. Okay, but so he's staying with Simon the tanner, and, um, and while he's there, Peter gets hungry one afternoon. And this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, about noon, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He, began, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter would have immediately recognized the significance of this vision because Jews in this day and age had strict dietary laws and they were not allowed to eat certain animals. One of those animals, you probably know, is pork, right? So they couldn't have sausage or bacon. And I think that would be miserable. I love my bacon. I put bacon on a salad. I do. So I love my bacon. Uh, and I think that would be miserable. But he had never had bacon or sausage. He never had certain foods that the Gentiles were allowed to eat. And so Peter gets this vision, basically, of pigs in a blanket. And um, yeah, I know. I know. I had another one. Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't pass it up. Anyway, so he gets this vision of pigs in a blanket. And... When he sees this vision, God says, 
get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, here's the thing. Why is God saying this? God isn't just giving Peter a lesson about food. He's actually giving Peter a lesson about people as well. Because Peter, the reason why he hadn't gone out to the Gentiles is because deep down in his heart, he still considered them to be unclean. They weren't really God's people. And what God is saying is there's a new day under Jesus, and now the things you couldn't eat before you can eat, but now the people that you used to not hang around, you're supposed to go to, you're supposed to reach. And you know how Peter responds? Surely not, Lord. One translation puts it like this. No, Lord, I will not. Now, I want you to get this. Peter is a follower of Jesus, and yet Peter feels the need to tell Jesus that in order to obey him, he has to disobey what he's currently telling him to do. Why? Because this makes Peter feel really, really uncomfortable. And let me just ask you, have you ever told God no because you thought he was asking too much of you? See, God says, no, Peter, you need to get up and kill and eat. You need to do what I'm telling you to do. And he says... Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In other words, you're living in a new day, and you need to embrace this bigger plan that God now has for the world, that God now has for your life. And the thing is, God has to give Peter this vision three times because Peter is so stubborn and doesn't want to accept it. And let me ask you again, is there something God's made clear that he wants you to do right now, but you're resisting it for whatever reason? There's something you know deep down. Yeah, God, you want me to do this. You want me to be a part of this. You want me to go for this, but you're resisting for whatever reason because it's outside of your comfort zone. And as Peter is processing all this, the Spirit of God tells him, Peter, there's some men at Simon the Tanner's front door, and they're here for you. These men, they've come from the household of a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not just any Gentile, he's an officer, he's a centurion in the Roman army. And Jews didn't like Gentiles, but Jews especially didn't like the Roman government. And God says, I want you to go with these men, because you're going to go tell Cornelius and his family about Jesus. So Peter obeys, and Peter travels 30 miles to Caesarea, where Cornelius lived. And when Peter gets there, and he sees this house full of Gentiles, I mean, Cornelius has invited all of his friends and family. I mean, the house is packed full of Gentiles. Listen to Peter's response. Look at what Peter first says to them. He says, you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. In other words, Peter doesn't sound real gung-ho, does he? I mean, Peter's like, I don't want to be here, but I'm here because God told me to be here. Peter feels really uncomfortable in this moment. But Peter does what God told him to do. And he begins to tell these people about Jesus. And as he's telling them about Jesus and the people are receptive to what Peter says, Peter quickly learns that no one is beyond God's reach. And as Peter is preaching to these people that a day ago he would not have preached to, something happens. God's Spirit manifests himself in a very unique way. The same way that God manifested his spirit on the day of Pentecost when the church began. If you remember, the apostles were able to speak in foreign languages so that everybody could understand. And it was a sign that they were entering into a new age, a new covenant, the age of Jesus, the age of his church. And now in this moment, Peter sees the same thing happen that he saw happen on Pentecost. God's spirit descends upon Cornelius and his family, his friends. And in this moment, Peter realizes... 
God's spirit is for everyone. God is for everyone. And listen to how Peter responds. He says, these people have received the Holy Spirit just as we also did. Can anyone then stop them from being baptized with water? I love what he says here. There was a time when I would have stopped these people from coming to know Jesus, from being full-fledged followers of Jesus, being baptized into him. But I'm not going to stop anymore. I'm not going to stand in God's way. No, the mission of God is unstoppable. I'm not going to stand in its way, and nobody else better do it anyway, because God is showing us that this is his bigger plan. And so all these people are baptized into Jesus, and they receive then the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. God is within them. And what Peter realizes is God's been on the move, but he's been struggling to keep up. And I wonder if that doesn't describe you. See, we're not asking God to join our mission. We're asking God's help to join His. It's not about what we want. It's not about us defining the mission for God. It's about us joining His mission. And what's interesting to me is that God asked Peter to travel 30 miles from Joppa to Caesarea to preach to Cornelius and his family. You know why? Because Cornelius already knew that Peter was coming. We didn't read this part of the passage, but Acts tells us that an angel of God came to Cornelius and told him, this man named Peter is going to come and tell you about Jesus. Now, here's my question. Why? Why didn't the angel just go ahead and tell Cornelius about Jesus? I mean, don't you think the angel could have preached a better, better sermon than Peter? I mean, honestly, why didn't the angel just go ahead and tell Cornelius about Jesus? Why did the angel say, there's going to be another guy who's going to come along and tell you about Jesus? And then Peter had to travel 30 miles to get there and all that. Because that's not how God works. See, it's God's plan for his people to resource his mission. God unleashes his plan through his people. That's been his plan all along. That's the only way that God is ever going to do it. And we see this over and over again in the book of Acts. Do you remember when there was an Ethiopian eunuch that was studying the scripture and he didn't quite understand it? And the Spirit of God tells a church leader, Philip, to go over and explain what the Ethiopian is reading. Now, why didn't the Spirit of God just tell the Ethiopian? Why did he tell Philip to go over and explain it? Because that's not how God works. God uses his people to unleash his plan. Why is it that when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to, to Damascus and he received this vision of Jesus himself, Jesus says, I want you to go into Damascus and this guy named Ananias, who's a follower of mine, is going to tell you about me. Why didn't Jesus just tell Saul about himself? Because that's not how God works. In God's infinite wisdom, he decided that the best way to advance his mission in this world is for his people to resource it. He wants us to be his vessel, his instrument, to change the world. And that's a lot of responsibility that's on us. But God believes we can do it because he's here to empower us to do it. And here's the thing. It will happen as long as we don't have, as long as we don't have a surely not Lord attitude. I wonder if when we started this new unstoppable initiative, if there weren't people who sat back and said, surely not. We just like how things are going. Things are fine. God has placed us in a position to do something big for him. And if we just keep the status quo, 
Well, that's what men would do. God wants for us to do things that are so big that only he gets the credit for it. And our church has had a reputation of doing that for years. And we want to keep doing that. Take a look at this video. The spiritually defining moment that comes to my mind in my experience here at First Church was burying my, my uh, prior, prior spouse. Uh, that, that was a time of, of great sorrow and great trauma in my life and I really didn't know where God wanted to lead me. I was 38 years old, uh, didn't have any children, and I really felt kind of lost. And my small group came uh, next to me and, and ministered to me and loved me, and they really helped me get through it. Little did I know what God had in store for me. I met this woman about six months later. Uh, we got married. She had a two-year-old daughter. It seemed like God had just changed things around in a way that I had never imagined. And we ended up having two more daughters. It just rebuilt my life in a way that I didn't think was possible. When Rod invited me to come here, his life group became instantly my family. Those same people are still in this church today. And they were like my, it's like God threw me a lifeline. Still to this day, they're my dearest friends and they love me unconditionally. And they said that I was the blessing they prayed for for Rod. You can come and do church or you can come and be the church. And I see so many people in this congregation that are coming in order to be the church. And in order to be the church, you've got to get out into the community and you've got to talk to people, you've got to serve people, and you've got to show them that you care. When we developed the slogan, Love Jesus, Love Like Jesus, it truly has resonated in every fiber of my being. It's made me more cautious when you're at the store and you're having to wait longer or things just don't go right. Am I truly representing the love of Christ in all that I do? And to me, that's been very instrumental in my life. I choose to give to First Church because I think it's an act of worship. Your giving is you worshiping the Lord. And you say, well, how, how, do, how does that work? And here's how it works. It's giving back what God has given you because you trust Him to take care of you unconditionally. And that generosity shows our love to the Lord. We want to be humble. We want to acknowledge that everything that's been given to us has been purposefully given to us by God. And we need to be purposeful in giving it back. I think God's challenging us at this point in our giving to ramp it up. I mean, okay, I've blessed you to this magnitude, what are you going to do? Uh, you've been faithful in your giving, but it's time to take it to the next level. This is just the sort of thing that uh, could do that and could make, a, could make a huge difference, not only in our life and in our giving, but also the lives of people in the community, the lives of people here in our church, and be a huge blessing to our children.
that's why I feel like that it's important to give because I want my grandbabies in this church. I want my kids growing up here. And it's not just mine, I want everybody's kids to be here. I want them to be like my two-year-old little daughter when she walked through the doors of this church coming and telling their mommy and daddy, Mommy, Jesus lives in my heart. I will never forget that day of my life at this church when it all started for my own daughter, which now is getting ready to be a mommy to two little girls. And it excites me. Uh, it's very important to me. It's passionate. It's a, it's a hard world out there. And if they can just w walk in the doors here and feel safe for an hour, two hours, and learn that Jesus loves them, I'm all in. The picture that I showed at the beginning of the message of the three granddaughters, those were the Abbott's granddaughters. And I love what she said at the end. We want this to be a church for our grandchildren, but for everyone's children and grandchildren. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. We want to invest in the next generation. If you've been upstairs, you know that our first kids ministry is booming. It's busting at the seams. And we believe that God has put us in a position where we can have a space where we can reach not just the families we have coming now, but future families that live in Owasso and beyond for years and generations to come. You've been given a commitment card in your little book. We're not asking you to do anything with it today, but Commitment Sunday, Advanced Women Eyes Coming, be praying about that because we believe God is working in us while he works through us right now. One more thing that I want to mention as we close. It's also interesting to me that Philip, I mean that Peter was sent to Caesarea to preach to Cornelius because there was another person there in Caesarea that could have preached to Cornelius. Philip, the evangelist, he was a church leader. He lived in Caesarea. And yet, God didn't ask Philip to go down the street and preach to Cornelius. He asked for Peter to come 30 miles away. Why? Because God's Spirit often works on us while he's working through us. See, it's not just that Cornelius needed Peter, but Peter needed Cornelius. And it was a pivotal moment in Peter's life, a defining moment. And we believe this unstoppable initiative is a defining moment for us. It's not about building a building. I've been saying that every week. This is about us being on board and excited and invested in God's mission. Is God working on us right now as he's still working through us? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for today and this chance we've had to open up your word. May we be an unstoppable church that, that lives with the mindset that we are playing to win because we know you are in us and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.